am I like a bird collector? Am I God? I'm like, are you God? Or God? <laughs> are you, you're tending to the birds in the wild and making sure that they have enough food. And uh, I mean, maybe if they just called the game like bird God, I would probably, oh my gosh. I would get it more. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dice Pirates, where we chart a course for the best of tabletop gaming. Welcome back. This is episode six. We're going to be talking about themes in board games. I am your captain, joined by the gunner, Matt. How you doing, Matt? I'm feeling great now that I've been given some uh, live ammunition to mess around with. The gunner. This, is, this seems dangerous. This seems like a mistake. I thought maybe you could focus your destructive tendencies out instead of bringing them into the podcast. So I decided to give you another outlet for your destruction. How does this thing, how do you load this thing? Uh, do, what? Dropped it. And, and that's it for the podcast. The podcast was just blown up. I'm sorry, everybody. Thank you for listening. So Matt, what have you been playing this week? Well, I've uh, been playing a bunch of games, but actually wanted to talk about something a little different uh, related to gaming, which is mini painting or miniature painting. Uh, it's it's interesting. There's kind of some like sub hobbies within the broader hobby of board gaming. One of those is the painting of uh, miniatures, the cool uh, figurines that come with mini board games and are like increasingly popular now in some of your high-end board games that are coming out of the Kickstarter world with elaborate miniatures. So painting of miniatures is becoming an increasingly popular thing. It uh, really comes to us from uh, miniature wargaming, where people have been painting their their figurines for years, but with more elaborate miniatures uh, becoming prevalent in uh, board gaming, it's a really cool kind of thing to do to spruce up and customize uh your games and it's something that i've been interested in and i am just kind of taking a plunge in it i wouldn't quite say that i've like by any stretch of the imagination mastered it or even am very good at it but i'm having fun with it and have completed or nearly completed a couple of different sets from two different games i sort of cut my teeth with uh, a set of miniatures from one of the dungeons and dragons board games from wizard of the coast which as an aside those Dungeons and Dragons, those Whiz Kids miniatures are the worst. I mean, they're really, they're just, they're, 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 they have no detail. They're just like, a, they're, they're weirdly like, because they have like a normal anatomical human uh, proportions, they actually look really underwhelming on the board. Uh, most miniatures are kind of exaggerated or stylized in some way. Those miniatures are the worst, but they were great for practicing on. I did a set of those. And so now I have taken the plunge and started uh, painting uh, the set from my favorite game, uh, a game that I think I've managed to mention in every episode, Runebound. <laughs> Keeping the streak alive, I see. Yeah. So I've almost completed uh, the full set of heroes from that game and have re- reasonably pleased with how they turned out. It's uh, it's a very like chill, uh, relaxing uh, thing to do. Just sit down and start plucking away with some uh, acrylic paints and uh, it uh, we played a game the other day using uh, some of the finished painted models that I did and I feel like it really adds a lot to the table experience to have painted miniatures and now I think I'm like really committed to trying to paint as many as I can. It definitely added something to the experience to have the painted minis especially when it doesn't normally have I mean Roombound comes with just black figurines and that's a little boring, honestly, especially when the rest of the map is so colorful and you're encouraged to kind of get into the mindset of your character. If you just have a bunch of black characters that 
have no detail on them whatsoever. It can definitely be spruced up a lot by the mini painting. It seems like it's a very kind of zen thing to do. You can kind of get into a nice little headspace, maybe to listen to a podcast or something while you're doing it. That's. It seems like it'd be really fun to just do if you have the time. Yeah, it is. And it seems a little intimidating to get into. It's not as hard as you think. I mean, obviously, if you've never painted before, I would definitely recommend using the miniatures from either a board game you're not particularly uh, fond of or you don't mind practicing on or get uh, a bucket of like low cost miniatures. If you go on Amazon and look for, you know, RPG miniatures uh, in bulk, you can get pretty big sets of just like you know, not great, like low quality plastic monsters and heroes, but those would be, you know, fantastic to uh, practice with. So if you've never done it, I would recommend practicing a bit. But once you get the hang of it, just kind of filling in all the little bits and bobs of color and then finishing it with a nice wash to kind of bring out the the highlights and or bring out the, the detail. Um, have one product recommendation, like I said, very uh, new on this. So I definitely don't have a full you know, scope of what's out there, but I've had a lot of success just picking up the Army Painter brand uh, starter kit. It has a nice set of, I think, about eight different colors and a standard wash that you can use to shade with. You can get that on Amazon for less than 20 bucks, so it's very easy to find. comes with a simple brush you can use. Uh, highly recommend that if you're trying to get uh, interested in getting started with it. And if you're curious what my uh, painting stuff might look like, I uh, have posted a few pictures on to the Dice Pirates Instagram so you can go gaze upon it. And if you're an experienced mini painter out there and you see uh, have some tips for me, send us a message. I would love to hear about it. Yeah, no, they, they look great. At least, you know, to my completely untrained eye, they certainly look great. Have you finished all of the Runebound characters so far? I'm close. I was actually working on one right before this call, which is what made me think about wanting to bring it up. Uh, I've got, I think, three more. Uh, they're just the ones from the expansion. I've done all the ones from the base set, and then I've got the remaining ones from the expansion. There's actually two expansions to that game that I don't have, so there's an elusive two heroes out there that I may pick up one day. Are you telling me there's more Runebound content that you have not played yet? Oh uh, yeah. Oh, there's, there's, we could still do yet a review of some Roombound content if I can get my hands on these two other expansions, but everything in that game is out of print now and getting very expensive. I noticed that the base box is like $138 on Amazon, uh, right now. Uh, so, uh, maybe I should actually just sell all my Roombound stuff. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting on a gold mine, apparently. I mean, how good can the game be, right? Board games are a great investment. I've talked to my financial advisor, and I'm sinking a lot of my earnings and savings into board games with the hope that I'm just going to turn it around and make a huge profit. I don't see a downside to this. What do you think? I think that sounds like perfectly sane advice. You should definitely spend all of your money on that. As a seasoned and definitely a veteran stocks trader myself, I am the one you should go to for advice on this. Uh, yes, definitely, because we are, if nothing, two rich bros. Uh, <laughs> hey, I did want to talk about one other quick thing that is board game adjacent, and that is uh, the, the the program, uh, the show Queen's Gambit on Netflix. This is a really cool limited series. I think it's like six or eight episodes that is all about uh, a woman who's a chess prodigy and uh it, because it's a drama, she's also uh, suffers from all sorts of emotional trauma, and there's a, a substance abuse, and there's a lot of a lot of uh, drama and uh, intrigue for her to overcome. But the the key focus of the show is about her becoming a chess kind of champion, and I think it's an interesting thing for like board gamers to maybe take a look at because there are two things about it that I think are interesting from a gamer's perspective. It's it's all about the community of people who are obsessed with playing games and playing them at a high level. And it's really fascinating to see some of these characters 
not just the main character, uh, Beth Harmon, the, the prodigy, but some of the other people that she competes against. And it kind of paints an interesting portrait of people who just love games, who love to challenge themselves, who are obsessed and can't stop thinking about the moves, the formations. And uh, it's a really fascinating kind of portrait of like people who just are highly competitive and want to be the best at playing. And then also it has a remarkably positive energy about the gaming community. I think probably more positive and uplifting than you might actually find sometime in the world, but it's very aspirational in that this isn't like a huge spoiler, but all throughout the show, she uh, beats top level competitors. They become her friends and her allies. So that by the end of the movie, she has a large community of people who are rooting for her. She, uh, plays in this huge championship game. It's something you don't really see a lot portrayed where there's actually like a positive energy about people like being beat and then appreciating their opponent. And uh, I, I don't know. I think it's really cool. I think it's a good portrait of, of competition, of gaming, of something uh, something worth taking a look at. I think it's fantastic. I have not yet had the chance to see it, but of course I've been recommended it multiple times and I'm fascinated to go watch it eventually. I Chess is one of those things that I, I used to play. I would love to get back into it because it does have just such a fun community around it. Everyone loves to play the game and I definitely should start practicing again. Uh, as I was watching it, I kept thinking about how uh, I know how to play chess. I've played chess. I've never, I don't think I've ever won a game of chess. It is, it boggles my mind. It does not, uh, I cannot uh, understand the strategy. I haven't taken the time to try to learn it, I suppose, but it is not my game, but I appreciate uh, people who are good at it. So uh, anyway, a little bit of an off topic recommendation for us, but thought it was worth bringing up. But Ian, what have you been playing lately? So over Thanksgiving week, my wife and I actually got a chance to play Parks, which is a 2019 uh, release by publisher Keymaster Games. And this is a super fun, super gorgeous game to play. It was actually published um, in cooperation with something called the 59 Parks Print Series, where there were a bunch of different artists who went ahead and created a lot of various um artworks for all the different parks across america and they're all absolutely gorgeous all of your parks are beautiful it is similar to wingspan in you know in the sense that you are trying to purchase various parks the parks have resources there's only a couple out at a time and each of the parks has information on the card about itself it's it's very similar in feel to wings to wingspan where you it's kind of a relaxing game to play there's not a lot of things that you can do to really mess with other players the action system is is very well defined it's not too complicated it's easy to pick up really fast like i said we played it twice over the course of a week and i was just amazed by how well designed it was how enjoyable it was and i would play it many more times yeah, this is a fantastic one. We uh, we got this to the table during one of our uh, Dice Pirates gaming nights uh, not too long ago, and I loved this game. Uh, you almost can't overstate how much of a liquor it is spread out on the board. It's similar to Wingspan in that way as well. It is. Uh, it really speaks to kind of the heightened awareness of like design and component design that you're seeing in uh, games these days, where people realize that a part of the joy of playing these board games is not just the rules and the mechanics, but it's actually picking up and playing with these pieces. And so with parks, you have these beautiful paintings on each card at like, which as you said, are part of the national Parks series. So they're all in different art styles and they're tremendously high quality, but then the wooden components are great in this. You have little hikers that are your player pawns that you remove along the board. You have, uh, 
little bits of like sunlight and leaves and little wooden animals that kind of represent some of the experiences that you're having and collecting along the way. Uh, and the graphic design on all the components is just, it's minimalist, but it's recognizable. It's uh, it's, it's perfection really. And the game itself is a simplified abstract uh, kind of representation of hiking and experiencing nature. It's uh, pretty quick to pick up. And uh, I think it's a great one for people to uh, um, consider during the holidays when they, maybe they're going to be at home playing with family and friends uh, and trying to introduce board gaming, thinking back to our gateway gaming episode, I think parks would be a great gateway board game to kind of show off to folks. If you want to kind of preach the uh, good gospel of board gaming to your family and friends over Christmas. It's a fantastic little game that I would recommend to anybody. And I think it exemplifies a game that has a theme that it executes well over the course of the game, which is, of course, what we're going to be talking about in this episode. So we're going to do it to a quick break, and we'll be right back with a discussion on themes in board games. Okay, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to dive into our main topic today, which, as Ian said, is themes in board games. So theme is uh, something that is talked about a lot uh, on this podcast and in uh, board gaming scene as people sort of evaluate board games and discuss them. And the idea of uh, how theme is implemented and what makes a game thematic is something that we thought would be worth talking about. And so I think that's probably as good a place to dive into it is what do we mean uh, when we talk about theme in board games? So Ian, what do you think is a good definition of like theme or thematic? I think it's important when you're talking about theme to understand that it's not just the narrative hook for a story. Because if it was just the narrative hook for a story, then it, it could be anything, any sort of veneer that you slap onto. But I think when we discuss what is a good theme for a game, what makes a game truly thematic, it's this marriage between the components of the game, the actual rule set of the game, and then the story that's at a more meta level of the game. There's a fantastic article written by Mark Major uh, years ago on League of Game Makers um, that discusses this. And he ex- like he breaks down the difference between narrative, mechanics, and theme and the way that they inform each other. But I think he's I think he hits the nail on the head in the idea that when you talk about the mechanics of a game, a me- the mechanics of the game are put into context by the narrative that is added onto the game. So when you're playing something like Dead of Winter, the mechanics of the game are entirely informed by the theme in which you're playing. The mechanics could be anything, but the theme allows you to build a story within the rule set. And so I think that's when we talk about what makes a good theme or which makes a theme in general, it's this marriage between every aspect of a board game that all pushes in the same direction and provides a cohesive experience. Yeah, it's interesting to think that, you know, theme is a has been a part of game design uh, essentially for as long as we've been playing games. You know, we were just talking about chess moments ago in the intro with the show The Queen's Gambit. And, you know, of course, chess being kind of one of our er board games, one of our earliest uh, tabletop experiences. And, you know, chess could have been about anything. It's it's essentially a movement puzzle. Each piece has its own unique movement and figuring out how to hem in and pin the movement of your opponent is really the game. 
could have been about anything, but very quickly they realized, you know, this would be a lot more fun if it were about fighting. And so it became knights, castles, bishops, kings and queens, and it, you know, it became representative of something. And it and immediately it's more immersive. And so you can see that like game designers have understood for as long as they've been designing games that if you give it a hook, as you said, a narrative hook or a story, or even just a sense of an environment, it's more inviting than just a purely abstract game. There are a lot of great, you know, abstract puzzle games out there. I was just playing the game Quirkle the other day with my wife, which is a great uh, almost dominoes-like puzzle game of matching with these colored tiles. It's a game completely devoid of theme. It's still, it's a lot of fun. But there are other times where theme really just elevates uh, the mechanics and makes you want to dive into the world of the game even more. Yeah, no, a theme is definitely not necessary, but a theme can definitely lift up its material and it can make it even better. There's also levels to which a theme will matter in a game. You have games such as Dead of Winter or Colt Express, where everything about the game, every single mechanic involved is based on the theme. It is entirely built around the idea of the game. Dead of Winter, for example, is a game about surviving the zombie apocalypse. It's, it's, it's essentially the non, it's the off-brand version of the Walking Dead game, if you want to look at it that way, because you are playing a group of survivors, you're trying to go to areas, salvage for equipments, keep the base alive, and everything you do, all of the actions you make are entirely informed by the theme itself. It is built around that. Then you have games such as Century Spice Road, which is a resource collection and then spending game that has a theme and the theme makes sense, but it's a far more superficial theme and it has less to do with the mechanics of the game and more about providing an experience to the user. Yeah, I have an interesting kind of not really anecdote, but just observation about, you know, thinking about theme and Century Spice Road in particular, because that game has such, it's really just kind of an abstract puzzle game and it's not very immediately thematic and it only communicates its theme really through its graphic design. That game has an unusually like futuristic looking like font and box. There's something for like the longest time I thought that was a science fiction game when I would see pictures of it or see the box because it has this like metallic kind of like i don't know it has this like strange look to it that made me think it was like a futuristic game and when i sat down to play it and i realized oh this is some kind of like rustic spice road medieval thing uh it, it totally confused me but it doesn't even matter whether or not it's set in space or the past or whatever you that game could be about anything it's really just a puzzle with kind of some window dressing i, I kind of wanted to, to to look look back to you know what you were saying about games like dead of winter and cold express because those to me hit on what i'm looking for when I consider a game to be like thematic or not. So my personal definition of thematic is, does the game uh, tell me who I am and does that inform the choices that I make in the game in like a logical way? So for example, in Cult Express, you're a bank robber or not bank robber, you're a, a bandit robbing a train and everything you do in the game just flows out from that identity in a way that makes perfect sense. You're trying to pick up as much loot as you can before the other bandits get it. You're trying to evade the sheriff, trying to shoot out, out shoot other uh, bandits before they get you. And all the while trying to maneuver around this uh, train set that is the uh, board in that game. It's wonderfully thematic because everything flows out from that identity. As soon as you sit down at the table and you tell somebody, all right, this is a train heist in the old West. You almost know how to play that game without even being told. It just makes perfect sense. And so to me, that that kind of key element of like, do I know who I am? 
and does that help me understand how to play the game is what to me makes a game thematic. Yeah, I would definitely agree on Cult Express being one of the best examples of that. And I think that goes back to what I was talking about with the mechanics and the components of the game also being inherently tied to the theme as well. Because Cult Express is not played on a board, it is played on a series of train cars that you actually build. They are modeled cardboard that you slot together and you build the train and you hook it together. So you're actually on a little miniature train with your characters and you're moving around and even the gameplay itself is built around creating a scene. You have a scene that plays out in real time based on your cards. And so every aspect of not only the mechanics, but also the components is built around that idea. And that's something that I think is fantastic and makes the theme better. It's why for me personally, something like Waterdeep Harbor does not land as well for me. Because when you look at the components of the game, the components really fail to reflect the theme of the game. See, this is where we slightly disagree. I actually consider uh, Lords of Waterdeep uh, is the game. I actually consider Lords of Waterdeep to be a pretty thematic game. Uh, Lords of Waterdeep is essentially kind of a Game of Thrones type situation. You have different factions, royal houses, or, or groups within the, in this case, the Dungeons and Dragons universe, who are all vying for power within the city of Waterdeep. And uh, you gain prestige by completing quests, completing jobs. But you don't do the jobs yourself because you're just uh, in the game. I think you're, you're supposed to be playing like the head, you know, of these organizations, pulling strings behind the scenes. So instead, you recruit warriors, wizards, and rogues to go out and complete these jobs for you. And that's represented in the game as these people, these assets are just cubes that you gather and spend. Uh, that is very abstracted. It would be kind of nice, I think, from a component standpoint, if instead of the little cubes you had maybe a little teensy warriors and wizards and rogues. And if maybe there was a little bit more to the act of like completing the quest, but there's also something thematic that fits like you're a high level person pulling strings. Uh, the people out doing the jobs really are just pieces to you. You kind of just spend them to like go kill those monsters in the sewer and you don't really care about them. But I also sort of recognize that that's a little bit of me kind of creating the story in my head. But I think that game does a good job of like setting that up. And then you can kind of tell the story like in between the margins. It definitely helps to be a game that is built upon an established world because you do allow people to bring in the stories that they know and the stories that they love and to use that. I think that Waterdeep part for me, just because like you said, there are, you're working with cubes. They, they're not figures. When you send them off on a mission, you're just, you're sending all of them off. You don't keep anything. There's no real story hooks that happen with that. There's no mechanics to really inform why these people are going off, where they're doing. There, there is some card lore that you can read through, but for me personally, it, it didn't, it didn't mesh exactly. But I think that's an important point to make though, is that just because a theme might not necessarily be as strong or inform much of the game doesn't mean that it's a bad game. Like Lords of Waterdeep is a fantastic game. It's very well designed. It's definitely one of the best worker placement games. And, you know, I think there's a reason why it's still as popular as it is. But, you know, of course, not having, in my opinion, not having as good of a theme doesn't make it any less of a game. Do you think that Champions of Midgard is a more thematic game than based on kind of what, how you're looking at it? Because Champions of Midgard is in a lot of ways the same type of experience. It's a worker placement game uh with kind of even a similar kind of shaped board and it's got, it's got a lot of similar components that, that 
the difference with Champions of Midgard is that when you go to complete a job, in this case, fighting monsters in that game, you don't just spend your resources and you complete it. You then you got to actually have to roll these dice and kind of play out the the battles and encounters. Is that more immersive or more thematic to you? Yeah. So I think for me that is exactly what I would be looking for in Waterdeep Harbor because it is functionally the same thing. You have quests that you're going to to go for. You're trying to defeat monsters and to do so you recruit warriors and you actually send the warriors out you decide where they go you have to figure out you know oh wait do i want to send two archers to fight this guy because they're especially strong against this monster or do i want to save my archers to get more food so i can recruit more warriors the next turn so you actually have like thematic ideas behind the mechanics in the game and i think for me that just makes it more it's more closely tied to the story behind the game which i think for me makes it a better theme yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I actually don't disagree. I think that Lords of Waterdeep is an example of a game with kind of a lighter thematic uh, implementation. Uh, I probably give it more of a pass because I do love the D&D universe and lore. So to me, you know, when I when you get handed a player card that says you're the Harpers and I kind of know the backstory of the Harpers, that all kind of clicks for me a little more. Champions of Midgard, uh, because you are playing out these battles and there's a little bit more of uh, these thematic choices you have to make, like traveling to the distant lands to fight the monsters. You have to figure out what you want to take on your journey to survive and all this stuff. Uh, it is a more thematic game. It's also a little bit clunkier and maybe less accessible. I think sometimes games that are really rich in theme can also be really complex because there's so many mechanics that they're trying to, to simulate. Um, you mentioned uh, Dead of Winter. Uh, that is a really thematic game. You are, it puts you in an identity. You know who you are. You're a, you're survivors in a zombie apocalypse trying to, trying to survive this world. And you then, every choice you make in the game comes out of that. It's also a really complex game in its own way. It's kind of heavy. There's a lot of rules for like movement and how zombie bites work and all the different actions you take on your turn and, and uh, how does starvation work and how does wind and does morale fall. And it's an easy game to uh, get kind of muddled in because it is trying to simulate so many different aspects of this really complex and rich theme. Yeah, a game can definitely get bogged down if it tries to model the story that it has built for itself too closely. There's a game I want to bring up called Cytosis, a cell biology game. And this game definitely was held back by the theme that it worked with. Obviously, you know, trying to be a game about molecular biology, it tried to model that too accurately. And I think it was held, it was held back in multiple different areas. First off, just because they tried to model what they were talking about so well, you had to get very complicated with your mechanics, which is not inherently a bad thing. But then if, if you sit down and try to read the rule book, because they kept a lot of the names for things, actual scientific names, reading the rule book feels like you're reading a textbook. It, it, it gets crazy. I was going to read a section of it. And then I realized that anybody listening to me would just fall asleep in the first five seconds because every other word is just a long scientific word. And it gets it kind of gets crazy because at least if you have complex mechanics, if you have a easy way to explain them, or if you have names that are very memorable and ways to work around that it can be easy but sometimes a theme can drag a game down yeah that was uh, i played that one several years ago with another one of our uh, friends in the group and it uh it intrigued me because it was a original theme sort of uh you know love it hate it things about board gaming is that there are like it feels like sometimes there are like five themes that like every game has it's like you know fantasy stuff space stuff 
pirates, uh, Vikings, and zombies are basically the only board games that you're allowed to make. And so to all of a sudden have a game about cell uh, biology, uh, I was like, okay, somebody's doing something original in this space. But that was an example too, where I think it, it stopped being thematic and became almost like a simulation. Like it was really trying to recreate elements of, uh, of this scientific world that were maybe a little too much. Um, I think that brings me in my mind back to what I think is really the gold standard in a lot of ways for a thematic game that is very simple to grasp, has simple mechanics, but is wonderfully thematic. And that is pandemic. Uh, and even just the original box release th- pandemic, I think still holds up as one of the most thematic experiences you can have around the table. Um, if you haven't played it, if you're not familiar with it, Pandemic is a cooperative game that simulates uh, the world we're living in in 2020, <laughs> a global pandemic. Uh, and the way it simulates it is remarkably cl- clever. Uh, whenever there's an outbreak in a city of a disease, you place a single colored cube down on that city on a world map. When more outbreaks happen, you continue to place cubes. But when there are three cubes and you would go to place a fourth, all of a sudden it uh, spreads to all cities that are connected to that. So really quickly trying to manage this uh, spread of disease around the board becomes this frantic race against time. And it is, uh, it feels real, you know, when you're playing it, because it really, the sense that there's a spreading disaster that is cascading all across the world feels very real. And it makes the stakes feel very high. The other thing they do in Pandemic that I think was so brilliant is they give you a role at the beginning of the game. And so, again, I mean, the core puzzle of at of removing these cubes and trying to mitigate the threat is great. But as soon as you get a role that says, like, you're the medic, you're the engineer, you're the transportation specialist, and you have a special power and a special job that's unique to you, now suddenly you, you have an identity. And that kind of informs how you play the game. If you're the medic and you're really good at clearing the cubes, you've got a job to do. You know, you're going to be running around trying to clean up hot spots. But if you're the person who's like really good at transporting other players around or the one that can like pass information back and forth easily to like help find the cure, you know, everyone has a specialized role and you kind of get into it. And so suddenly this simple puzzle game almost becomes like a light role-playing experience. It's a fantastic game and it's one where there's a really clever puzzle there, but the theme elevates it and makes it come alive and it's memorable every time you play it. Pandemic did a great job of being just abstracted enough to be able to simplify its mechanics. They were easily understandable, but not losing the idea of what those mechanics were supposed to relate to. And of course, they went on to do an even better job in Pandemic Legacy, something that I do really want to be able to play at some point, because I mean, there's a reason it has been consistently one of the top rated board games of all time. It's a it's a huge blind spot. Uh, if we're just going to come clean and be transparent out there with the uh, board gaming public, we have not played Pandemic Legacy. It's a shame. Now, we have played some other uh, of the great Legacy games. We've played uh, Gloomhaven, Charterstone, we, or even like partway through the Scythe Legacy campaign. But the Pandemic Legacy is one that we really got to get to the table because I do love Pandemic. And to your point about, you know, keeping it simple, it does not get bogged down in its theme. Its theme is... It's games mechanics aren't hampered by trying to simulate the theme. It's all cohesive and tied together in a brilliant way. Uh, I think uh, Matt Leacock, who designed that game, is just particularly good at thinking about theme and puzzle. His other cooperative games, like the Forbidden Island series of games, uh, Forbidden Desert, Forbidden Skies, all have that same feeling of a, of a really brilliant puzzle 
wrapped around a theme that sort of comes alive every time you play it. Yeah, I think that's definitely an example of a lot of these newer games that really understood how to blend the theme as well. Not that we didn't have those games before. I think Dune is an example of an amazingly thematic game. And honestly, the theme is one of the reasons it stuck around for so long. If it was not a Dune board game, it would not have stuck around. But you've seen a lot of games lately that have been able to lean more into the thematic side of things. I mean, when you look at a lot of the board games that came out during the renaissance of board games, you're talking about like Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, they're good games, but there's not a lot that the mechanics of Settlers of Catan have to do with settling a new land. There's not really a lot that the mechanics of Ticket to Ride have to do with creating train routes across America. It's not necessarily they don't necessarily tie in super well. And I think that's been really cool to see games that have been able to be more informed by their theme. I have a random aside and a thought about Catan and then we can get back or Catan. We did this the last time we talked about it. I couldn't decide in my head whether or not it was pronounced Catan or Catan. And so once again, I'm going to do it both ways in different times. Uh, No, uh, I had a random thought about that game is would that game have been as popular if it were like settlers of, Sweden or settlers of North America, they did interestingly decide to set it in a fictional place. And so it has this odd title, you know, when you're going to pick it up, it's Catan. Well, what is that? Where is that? Uh, that is like a kind of a light stab at like making that game thematic. It's like, Oh, it's going to be set in a fantasy world or in this kind of alternate history. But you're right. When you pick it up and play it, like there's no lore to Catan, uh, or maybe it is in the book, and you can like read it. I don't know. I've never paid that much attention to it. There's nothing. There's no flavor text on the cards. There's nothing about the game itself that makes that come alive. Whatever they're trying to convey, it's just the kind of lightest little dusting of uh, of theme to, I guess, to draw you into it. And I guess it does to a certain degree. Yeah. There, I mean, there is a theme to it. I mean, it having some construct to work within definitely helps. Um, I think that's, I feel similar to that, that I feel towards um, Castles of Burgundy, because I feel like Castles of Burgundy is definitely slightly more thematic, but when you get down to the mechanics, you're building, I guess, a kingdom of sorts, but really you're just filling in colored areas, and there's not a lot that the actual mechanics of the game have to do with the theme, and so I, I think that's a very similar game. I... I slightly disagree. I th- I would say that that Burgundy is more thematic than some Euro games, but not the most. I'm glad you brought up Burgundy though, because it is important to note that you know sometimes when we think about thematic games, that uh, it, we tend to think of uh, stuff in the lovingly known as the Ameritrash tradition, big thematic big box games full of dice and monsters or enemies and ships, stuff with genre. You know, focus, horror, sci-fi, fantasy. Uh, But theme is a big part of the Euro or, you know, puzzle type game scene as well. Because, you know, all of these games need a hook to pull you in. Burgundy's hook is that you're uh, some type of a noble in like 15th century uh, France. And you're trying to fill out your estate by purchasing... uh, you know, assets like uh, buildings and and agriculture and trying to make the most awesome dope chateau in all of the Burgundy region. Uh, I think it's lightly thematic. It meets a couple of my criteria. It does tell me like who I am. I know I'm a noble. I know, and it it does kind of help me inform my actions. I know I'm trying to build my estate and make my estate be as awesome, but it doesn't really bleed into like every choice that you make. It's still a puzzle game about 
maximizing, you know, your options to try to get, you know, to most efficiently and quickly build out your player board. Uh, I think a better Euro game with a theme is a more recent one, Clans of Caledonia. In Clans of Caledonia, you are uh, playing a Scottish clan at the turn of the century, and you are trying to engage in building uh, a business using the great sort of agricultural exports of, uh, of Scotland. You can uh, uh, raise cattle for milk and cheese. You can uh, have sheep for wool. You can grow grains to eventually make uh, bread or good old Scottish whiskey. And then you export all these goods for contracts to make money and points. I think that game is actually very thematic. And I think it does a couple of smart things to bring its theme alive. The first thing is it tells you who you are, not just broadly, like you're a Scottish clan, but it tells you specifically. They give you a little player card that says, hey, you're clan McDougal or McGonagall or something. I hope that's not offensive. I said McDougal. I think that's a, one of the clans. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, but uh, McGonagall is definitely not a clan. Um, and uh, no, that, that's a Harry Potter character. Um, I'm so. pretty sure that's a clan. Guys, you can direct all of your hate mail to uh, Matt Clower. I'm, I may be thinking about uh, I may be thinking about the movie Braveheart. Anyway, uh, when you when you start playing Clans of Caledonia, you get a specific clan that has your own sort of unique focus and asymmetrical power. And so it's kind of like that roll card you get in Pandemic, where y- you know specifically who you are and you've got a unique niche that's going to kind of inform how you play. Also, all the moves and action you take are directly informed to this like theme. So you pick up a contract for uh, beef or, or, or bread and right away, you know what you got to do. It's like, all right, I need to plant some uh, fields. I've got to make a bakery to make the bread. Once uh, after I harvest my wheat and then you sell it for profit. What makes it even more thematic is this market economy. Like after you, if you sell goods, it, the, the prices fluctuate organically. So all of a sudden uh, after you have uh completed a contract for a bunch of milk, you may notice that the price for like uh, beef has like plummeted. So you might actually quickly get out of the beef business and go into something else and diversify the need to like diversify your economy. So to me, Clans of Caledonia is one where the world that the game is trying to create actually comes alive pretty quickly. And you feel like you're making like business decisions and you don't necessarily feel like you're playing a game. Yeah. I think that ties in exactly to, what I've been talking about in the way that the mechanics reflect the game, but also just the components. That's one of my favorite things about playing the game is that everything has is designed correctly. Like you have sheep that are actually look like sheep. They're not just little cubes. And while you don't need those, I think that really helps to inform the game. It helps to make it not only more enjoyable to play, but it does help to make it easier in a way to see your path to what you want to do. I want to do like a quick pivot and I want to talk about Twilight Imperium because I think that's a massive game. And I don't know how you feel about it thematically, but I don't think Twilight Imperium necessarily has the strongest theme. I love the game and I am super excited for the next time we get to bring it to the table. But I think that for as big as it is and as much going into it as there is, I, I don't think that it as a game necessarily uses its theme very well i think you're completely wrong and you should be ashamed of yourself as a person for (laughs) everything you just said uh twilight imperium to me is one of the most thematic games and it it 
embodies what I feel like is this like third criteria that I'm looking for in a thematic game. So, you know, again, the things I'm looking for are, do I know who I am? Does that inform my actions in the game logically? And then really this third secret sauce is, does the world uh, of the game come alive around the table? And that's something that I think happens every time that you play Twilight Imperium. So you, like all good thematic games, you're given a specific identity. And uh, in Twilight Imperium, you're given a, you're, you are this race of aliens. This is their story. This is what they do. They have these powers that are unique and special to you. Uh, from there, you start to make decisions and act inside the context of the game. And very quickly, I think people start to like think about the game uh, in, in a very like realistic way. Like you start uh, forming alliances and even betrayals and backstabbing. There's a galactic council portion of that game where everyone has to come together and pass laws that affect the whole universe. And you're quickly like negotiating and trying to figure out how to get benefit for your planet and your empire and who are you going to betray? I mean, Ian, you, you were executed literally executed <laughs> in one of our games of twilight imperium there was a demand for justice and the, the t players voted to to publicly execute you which i can't remember how that impacted you in the game but it was devastating and um that's just that's a really thematic detail like all of a sudden having to debate a, a public execution uh, and, and all sorts of like laws and tariffs can be passed that can change the state of the board in all these interesting ways i think that's a game that is very magical because the uh, game world uh, sort of comes alive right around the table every time we play it. I mean, you're not entirely wrong. Um, maybe just mostly wrong. Uh, I mean, yes, it does have a lot surrounding it. I mean, there's very lovingly crafted backstories for the different races you play. But I think where it, it falls down a little bit for me is that there's functionally no difference between the races, at, le at least in the third edition. I understand in the fourth edition, it, it, it get, they do adjust things a little bit. And I'm actually very excited to play that because it sounds like it leans even further into that. But at least in the third edition, there is there is some, but for the most part, everybody will be playing a very similar game. And while you do have moments like public executions and things like that, they're, they're more of a, a metagame sort of thing than they are an actual in-game, I feel like, within in-universe type of idea. And I think that's where... It, it really sort of falls for me in being an extremely tight thematic game just because not everything you do feels informed by that. It feels more like a game at some points. A game that I think has a lot of similar aspects to Twilight Imperium, but I think uses its theme way better is Root, actually. Because I think Root has that same massive strategy aspect to it. It takes a huge amount of time to play you have a lot going on at once but it uses its theme incredibly well and it uses it to make it way more involved for everybody at the table when you're playing as the otters or you're playing as the cats you feel like you have a real goal the cat's entire backstory is that they came in and they conquered this land and they're trying to build on top of it to go ahead and take over and so your win condition as the cats is to build across the entire map you want to build as much infrastructure as possible whereas if you're the rebellion your backstory is that you have been suppressed for too long and your entire goal is to spread sympathy throughout the wildlands you're supposed to eventually rise up create revolts and have your officers that will lead the charge everything that each faction does feels completely tied to who they are 
as a character. And that's something I didn't get in Twilight Imperium. I agree with you on Root. I think Root is wonderfully thematic. I think it has that right combination of theme components to create uh, a really vibrant and engaging experience. I just think you're completely wrong about Twilight Imperium, uh, like embarrassingly. So there's not a huge difference. Actually, you're not wrong. We ha- we have been playing over the years the third edition. We've not played the fourth. Um, so I can't say for sure. It is my understanding that they did some things to make each race uh, feel each faction in that game feel more distinct, including getting your own unique flagship. I think it's a nice detail. Uh, uh, I'd actually love to get a hold of a copy of the four, of the fourth edition of that game soon. But even in the third ed- third edition, I think there's enough distinction because each race has their own unique asymmetrical power, and and some of them are very distinct, like the uh, cat race, the the Emirates of Hakan. I think are who they are. If I pulled that name off the top of my head and got it right, I'm going to be so proud of myself. Pretty sure you got it right, actually. I'm very proud of myself. The reason I remember that is because I was playing the Emirates of Khan when I was suddenly and brutally backstabbed by my so-called friend Matt at the table. But wasn't that a wonderfully thematic moment in the game? Like, my secret objective was to destroy another person's homeworld, or to conquer another person's homeworld, and you straight up left your homeworld undefended, and and so I did it. Uh, But to my point, though, the Emirates of Hakan have this unique ability where they get to approve or break any uh, trade alliances around the table, because there are the merchants. So all of a sudden, the player who is playing as the Emirates have this totally unique dynamic where they have to bless all these alliances. They can completely break them apart at any moment if they want to. And they're kind of doing this whole thing. It's it's lighter than Root, right, where literally every player is doing their own thing. But there is a moment there where a certain player in the Twilight Imperium game has a special role and a special power that nobody else has. And they start, and you kind of have to role play and negotiate with them to make the deals you want. And they get to approve or not approve them. It, uh, I, I really do. I think Twilight Imperium is wonderfully thematic. I think any game where uh, you start talking and interacting around the table in a pseudo role playing way, as if you are the, the, the factions and groups you're playing, uh, that's something, some kind of like secret sauce and magic is happening there. It happens in Dead of Winter, where you know there's a traitor potentially in the mess, and everybody is looking at each other side side eyed and kind of like trying to wonder what's going on in the discussion. Just immediately, the game flows into the conversation in like a really organic way. So instead of you just playing a game, you're experiencing a game, and that's what theme can do. It can make a game instead of just being a fun uh, puzzle, a fun challenge that you're all doing together. It becomes a like a memorable experience that you're all sharing. I think you're right. I may I may have given Twilight Imperium a little, may not have given it quite enough credit. And I will say this. I think that if anybody is able to pick a narrative out of a game where it's not there, I think it would be you. I'm pretty sure that you explained to me the narrative behind Splendor, which has no theme whatsoever. I mean, I, I, you explained it all to me, and I still don't see how it connects to the game at all. So I think I think you're... I think you're far more of a sucker for the story within a game than I am. I mean, I am always looking for story. I mean, that is, uh, that's probably 90% of what I'm looking for in a game. Uh, I almost kind of want to do a whole episode on this. I don't want to go into my full thesis on this right now, but I do think games 
board games in particular are a fascinating like venue for storytelling because you're essentially dealing with a pile of like plastic and cardboard, you know, cards and dice and components, and they sort of organically create a story. A good game kind of does organically create a, a story sometimes. Uh, and even a game, so Splendor doesn't really have much of a story, but it does have a, a, a loosely paced together theme of trying to build up your little empire as a as a jewel merchant in ye olden times and eventually acquire a patron to support you. I wouldn't call that game thematic, but I would say that it does have at least the tiniest little like hint of theme. But I am fascinated by the way that theme can create these emergent story experiences. So here's what I want you to explain to me, though. As somebody who loves the story a game has and will dig for a game, will dig for it, even a game that doesn't expressly put it out there. Why do you hate Wingspan so much? I'm glad you asked. Uh, well, first of all, I don't hate Wingspan. Uh, I don't love Wingspan like a lot of people do. Uh, I think we've all been uh, justifiably charmed by this game's incredible art. I think that there is a thesis paper to be written about this game's use of component and design to pull you in. I think I, I, I could, I could, I could probably write 500 words right now on just the dice alone of that game. They're, they're the best dice almost in a game. They're big, they're chunky, they feel good in the hand, they sound good when they're rolling down that little dice tumbler. Uh, they're so good. It's a, it is a wonderfully designed game, but it is not thematic to me because nobody can explain what's happening in Wingspan to me in any way that makes sense. Because every time you've tried to do it, anytime anyone tries to do it, they always say, they always start with this phrase right here. They go, well, you're a bird watcher and you collect birds. And I'm like, right away, get out of here with that garbage. Bird watchers okay. collect birds. <laughs> okay, so you're going to go ahead and you're going to sit down for a second. I'm going to explain to you why Wingspan is incredibly thematic and why it all makes sense. There are a few games I've, I've played where every single aspect of the design leads into it. So every player has their own player board. Now, if you just have it open, you're not going to see it. But if you close the player board, on the back of the player board, it is designed to look like a book. You have a book in which you are writing down your bird sightings. That That's thematic right there, okay? But not only do you have that, you also have these birds require certain food. They have to have a certain food for you to be able to sight that bird. So within the theme of the game, you have to either have that food, you have to have that food available, whether it's going somewhere that that food is or putting that food out, you have to have that food for that bird to arrive. And when that bird arrives, then you can say, oh, I saw that bird. Okay. And maybe it's small rodents if you're trying to find an eagle. Maybe it's worms if you're trying to find small birds or seeds, things like that. You also have an actual bird feeder. All of your dice have different foods all around them. And when you roll them, you roll them in an actual bird feeder. You build this bird feeder from cardboard pieces, and that is your dice roller. That's incredible. Yeah. I, I yeah. love that. And then you have actual little eggs that are created. They actually look – they're little molded eggs, and they're gorgeous. Everything's beautiful. But it's also so thematic. I don't see how you don't see this. Explain to me then, in your theory that the game is about a bird watcher uh, with their journal, and of course we all know how every bird watcher notoriously carries a birdhouse with them out into the field. That classic trope of bird watching. But explain to me in your theory about what the game is about. Explain to me how eggs work thematically. If you're a bird watcher, the mechanic of eggs. How does that work? What are you doing with those eggs? 
I mean, you've, you're you watching these birds. They're going to lay eggs eventually, aren't they? I mean, what else are they... What, what are they going to do in their nest but lay eggs, Matt? So so why does it require me as a bird watcher to spin two of this like red-crested finches' eggs to, so that I can add this osprey to my water row? Well, I don't know if you are aware of this, Matt, but when an egg hatches, a tiny bird comes out. Well, why do I got to steal two eggs from this <laughs> other bird? This okay, other bird okay. You, found, you found the one element in which the game does not 100% apply to its theme. You don't, you somehow think Waterdeep Harbor, I'm sorry, Lords of Waterdeep is thematic, but you don't think this one is thematic? I mean, come on. I mean, I, I don't think the internet masters <laughs> are going to be on your side here because you said that Twilight Imperium is not thematic and I'm pretty sure it's number two. Okay, on the see, I didn't say that it wasn't thematic. I said that it was not as thematic as it could be. I thought that it failed in a certain, but that's not what we're talking about here. You're the bad guy here. You don't think Wingspin is thematic when it clearly is. I don't think it's thematic. I think it actually uh, is a fascinating uh, example of the way theme is like very malleable. And I think it's really, uh, you know, in all seriousness, we talked about leaving this to the end of the discussion because we do kind of see it differently. I wouldn't use the word thematic. I would use the word evocative. And what I mean by that is it has clearly the theme of birds is all over Wingspan. It's got beautiful bird art on every card. Uh, there's uh, the different habitat zones on your player board. So you're having to think about all the different habitats that the birds live in. You're kind of experiencing in an abstract way, the life cycle of birds as they do lay eggs and more birds come out. You're thinking about the food they eat. The game evokes birds in every way. What I would say, what I would argue is that it doesn't really create like any kind of cohesive experience about what you're doing and how you're interacting with these birds. I mean, yeah, I kind of get the core idea is that you're a bird watcher, but I do think that it's odd. Like the, the initial kind of gameplay mechanic about having a hand of birds and then spending food to put them down. That doesn't like connect in my mind with like watching the birds. I feel like I'm acquiring the bird. So that's different. Now I'm like, am I like a bird collector? Am I God? I'm like, are you God in that game? <laughs> are you, you're tending to the birds in the wild and making sure that they have enough food. And uh, I mean, maybe if they just called the game like bird God, I would probably, oh my gosh. I would get it more. I would be like, oh, okay. I'm the, I'm the nature spirit. Who's like observing the birds. Uh, I don't know. It just, to me, it, it's not thematic in that it doesn't tick off those things that I talked about that I really look for. I don't know. Who, I don't quite know who I am because I don't know who I am. It doesn't like immediately inform the actions. And then because of that, the world of the game doesn't really come alive. But that said, it's remarkably evocative and it's a game that you do kind of get immersed in in spite of itself. And that's why I think it's really interesting to kind of cap off this discussion of theme because it doesn't have to be as on the nose as something like, uh, pandemic where it's like the theme and the gameplay are just like right in mesh. Sometimes theme can just be this layer of style and design that ties the experience together. And clearly people love wingspan. I mean, it is one of the most popular games right now. So whatever gripes I have about the theme, not being completely articulated, it's not holding anybody back from enjoying it. My big problem with Wingspan is I think it's entirely too dependent on randomness in the deck and is not actually that well designed. But we can talk about that later. I, I, we're going to have to do, I mean, you know, you say that as the guy who, I, I don't know if you've ever won the game. Um, just going to put you on put you on blast real quick here. Now, I have never won the Wingspan and it's because it's too random and it's not a very, uh, I mean, it's a good game, but it's not a great game. Oh, 
we're gonna have a very long discussion about wingspan at some point because I think you're I think you're really missing out on not loving this game to the extent you need to love it. But I think that's where like I think we come at theme. I think you focus on theme as more of a narrative idea. Like you focus on the narrative and the story of it. Whereas I think I'm I think I'm looking also more like the way the game is designed. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I think they're both perfectly valid points. I think it's interesting to see that there are different ways that theme can be represented within a game. And I think that's really interesting to see how that can come out in one way and may not come out in the other. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, theme is just another element for how games can be fun. It's just another like layer on the game experiences that makes uh, a game more memorable or more alive. And it gives us uh, board game uh, nerds just something else to argue about. But, you know, theme to me is you're right. I think it's just anything that kind of just uh, helps me uh, get lost in the world of the game is uh, is a game that I would consider to be thematic. I think that's I think that's a really good way to look at it. And like you said, the, I mean, the end goal is just to enjoy the game, and a theme is just another way to provide context for people so they can enjoy the game more. So that is our discussion on themes in board games. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Matt, we have 200 listens so far on this podcast. Can you believe that many people wanted to listen to us? I'm stunned. I'm shocked. I can only attribute it to people being in lockdown on the pandemic. Uh, I don't know why this many people are listening to us talk about board games, but I'm super grateful, super humbled and excited. Um, this has been a really fun journey so far, just uh, a few episodes in and, uh, Guys, if y'all keep listening, we're just going to keep doing this. So it's up to you guys. I mean, you know, if you want us to stop, you're just going to have to stop listening. It's been fantastic. We love the response. Um, we're so happy to see you guys engaging in it. If you do enjoy it, throw us a review on iTunes. That helps us go up the ranks there. Or reach out to us and let us know some games that you think are super thematic, games that you love coming back to, games that you love for the story. Um, Matt, how can people get in touch with us? You can find us on Instagram at Dice Pirates. Uh, we would love for you to give us a follow there and um, comment on some of the posts, uh, get involved in the discussion happening over there, or send us a message. Uh, we are active there every day, and we will respond if you send us a message. Um, so that is probably the best way to interact with us. And uh, like Ian said, uh, if you can subscribe to us on uh Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you pod your casts, you can find us, and uh, we appreciate it. Absolutely. We are going to be coming back next episode with a discussion on games that are good to play with kids. That's something that I know you've had a little more experience than I have, Matt. Yes, I do have uh, children, and playing games with kids is an adventure. Uh, not every game that is marketed for kids is actually very fun, but there are some gems out there, so uh, we look forward to kind of unpacking that topic next time uh, we get together here on The Dice Pirates. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back next time. See ya. See ya.